Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, Eleanor of Aquitaine was the most powerful woman in 12th century Europe, possibly in the entire Middle Ages. Born in 1122, she inherited land from the Loire down to the Pyrenees, about a third of modern France. At 15, she married the King of France, Louis VII, and later joined him on the Second Crusade. She became stronger still after their marriage was annulled, as her next husband, Henry Plantagenet, became Henry II of England. Two of their sons, Richard and John, became kings, and she ruled for them when they were abroad. By her death in her 80s, in 1204, Eleanor had Plantagenet children and grandchildren in power across Western Europe. This led to competing claims of inheritance, and for much of the next 250 years, the Plantagenets and the French kings battled over Eleanor's land. With me to discuss Eleanor of Aquitaine are Lindy Grant, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Reading, Nicholas Vincent, Professor of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia, and Julie Barrault, University Lecturer in British Medieval History at the University of Cambridge. Nick Vincent. Where did the power line, what we now call Western Europe, when Eleanor was young? Well, we're talking about uh, a situation in which these great power structures, the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of France, have fractured into a series of semi-independent feudal principalities. So France is divided into a series of duchies and counties, with the King of France claiming a degree of overlordship, but not really being able to implement policy on any basis day by day in any of those regions. Was he based in Paris? Yes. On the La Cité? Literally, in the island of France. So he's in the island of French royal power in the middle of a sea of these feudal barons. Now, what was... So there are all these... It's it's split up into... But were they competing with each other? Were they fighting each other? What was going on? Yeah, I mean, they they come, they go... uh, We are in a sort of Game of Thrones situation with these these competing barons, these dukes and counts and so forth rising and falling and in constant competition with their neighbours. What do we know about the position of Eleanor's family uh, just when she was born? They're immensely powerful, but their power is itself peculiar. So they cont- they're in the south, can you just... They're down in the south, so that they're that bottom left-hand corner of France, from the Loire down to the Pyrenees. They have an enormous trade there from wine, from the, the, the river trades that go into the Atlantic... They are immensely wealthy, but they too rule over a territory that is divided amongst a series of feuding sublords, counts and viscounts, so that their their control over that region is itself fractured. Is it, could it generally be called Aquitaine, or is that not sufficient? Yeah, I think Aquitaine is the best way of describing it, because it comprises a series of counties and regions like Gascony and Poitou, and all of these fall under the general name of Aquitaine. Are we talking about a specific language here? Are they talk, is there a generalised French around the place, or is a lot of what we would call dialects in this There's country? a lot of dialect here, so the further south we go, we're getting into a language where the French for yes is oc, and it's therefore Occitans, it's it's the southern French version of northern French, we. And I suspect that even as in the 19th century, a large part of that would have been incomprehensible to people from the north of France. And these are songs of the Auvergne are in that, aren't they? Yeah, so yeah. It, it, precisely. So we're in that sort of region. What do we know about her early life? Um, surprisingly little. 
We don't know when she was born. We don't know where she was born. I mean, a general idea of the year, though, I hope, otherwise... Sometime in the early 1120s, so 1122, 1124, something like that. But there's an enormous amount of mythologising that goes on later. So there's an enormous desire to pin her down to a particular location, a particular date. But her grandfather and her father were, is this true, were thought to be troubadours, uh, lovers of the art of song? Certainly her grandfather. Her grandfather had helped introduce that sort of poetry, probably from across the Pyrenees, probably ultimately from the Arabic world. We're we're talking about a troubadour culture in parts of southern France with which he is associated. In those days, the childish father of a man or woman wasn't really a concept, was it? So uh, this high-spirited, extraordinary, bold, extraordinary woman uh, seemed to have left no trace until she married a man. That's precisely right. So, so the birth of daughters is not something that the chroniclers take notice of. And uh, this is a region that is actually very, very poorly recorded in terms of the chronicle record. So in a, not, not even a little bit of an indication? N- not at all, really, until the 19th century when people begin inventing all sorts of versions. OK, Julie Barrow, in 1137, Eleanor's father died and she married the new king of France, Louis VII. She might have been 13, she might have been 15, 15 at the outside. Why did she marry him? Well, I mean, why was she married to him? She probably had absolutely little to say about it. Um, William the Ninth, um, the Tenth, sorry, um, her father, was uh, died on his way to uh, Compostela and he didn't expect to die. No one expected him to die. And he probably was thinking of this remarrying. This is a pilgrimage. You don't expect to die. In a no, well, lots there, of people, suppose, surprisingly, yes. lots of people did, but um, he certainly didn't. And there are rumours that he was planning to remarry, probably to have a male heir. So when he fell ill on pilgrimage, he knew that he was leaving two daughters and that his oldest, um, older the two, um, Eleanor, would be the heiress, but it was complicated for a girl to be an heiress. And it wasn't impossible. We have several examples in the first half of the 12th century of women coming to a throne or coming to um, some position of responsibility. But it was always a gamble. It was always more likely to be challenged. And then there was the huge question of who that girl slash woman would marry and what sort of claims the husband would have on that inheritance. So probably William had to think very fast about what to do. And what seems to have happened is that he got in touch with the French and said, there is that daughter of mine. Um, Would you marry her off? And probably knew that that would be to the heir of the French throne. So it probably wasn't something that was desirable from William's point of view, but he had to make do with a very problematic situation. And so he, it was an arranged marriage that when he, he when she would marry the, the future yes. King of France. Or by that time, the then King of France, because his father had died too, hadn't No, he, he hadn't died yet, oh, but right. he had been crowned in his um, father's lifetime in 31, right. uh, when he became the heir after his older brother died. So, and um, Louis and Eleanor were re-crowned um, after the, their marriage. Are we emerging into some sort of recognition of a few facts about her? Do we know what she was like when she got married? No, we have no likeness. I mean, her her looks were never really uh, described by anyone. We have no idea. What no, but she not just that her nature or anything no, she did. No, she nothing. just got married. How edu- should we do know? Do we know how well she was educated? No, we. Um, as Nick said, we know absolutely nothing about the sort of person she was when she married. 
Right. So she marries she marries Louis the seventh, and where do they set up? Uh, well, Louis came to fetch her. Uh, they got married in Bordeaux, and that in itself is really interesting because it's the first time in over three centuries that a king of the Franks, so those northern kings, um, went as far south as Bordeaux. So it, it, what it meant in diplomatic and political terms was huge. And Louis came with a huge um, entourage, a lot of knights. They were clearly expecting possible trouble. Um, so they, he went to fetch her, they got married, and then they went back up north. And there was no trouble? No. She had... Uh uh, access? Did you, what sort of access did you have to the territory and wealth she'd been left? Um, very little. Um, as she far had to as give it know, all to him. Yes, and he became, as soon as they were married, he became king of the Franks and of the French and Duke of the Aquitanians, and it became his title as well as hers. And as far as we know, she had little autonomous hold on any form of power on Aquitaine during their marriage. Would her hold on power have been increased had she had male heirs? Uh, well, it would have given her status. I mean, the uh, clearly by the time they went on, on crusade, uh, the fact that she didn't have a son put her in a very fragile position because she had failed the first duty of a, of a queen or any aristocratic woman, which, is, which was to produce that male heir. So I don't know about power, but status and... Yes, definitely. So she goes on. So uh, let's let's uh, let's turn to that second uh, crusade, Lindy Grant. She has one daughter when she goes on. It did ten years, about ten years after the marriage. Now, as I read it uh, in Bernard of Clairvaux, she and the king swore on the sword to go to the crusades. Is that true? If it's true, she's got, well. If it's one of your notes, uh, uh, if it's true, that gives her she's in a position of some sort of power. I'm trying to find out something about this woman, about to whom what everything happened. You don't know. She goes Who off said on that in the notes? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. She goes off on um, crusade with her husband. Yeah. He responds to the papal... Is that unusual? Well, um, this is the first crusade that a king has gone on. Um, so I suppose there were no precedents. Because she went, several other aristocratic women went... And it might seem a rather strange thing to do, but in fact, a hundred years later, when uh, Louis's uh, grandson, great-grandson, went um, on crusade, he too took his wife and several great ladies of France went too. I think the crusade was thought of perhaps as a pilgrimage with some fighting rather than fighting with a pilgrimage. And so perhaps in that context, the women went along as well. Um, and they set off. They went across um, to Byzantium, to Constantinople, and then across Asia Minor, and they were aiming for Antioch. Um, the um, expedition was not particularly successful. They fell out with the Emperor of Constantinople, and um, they were attacked in uh, Asia Minor, and they must have arrived rather... Um, Relieved eventually at um, Antioch in March 1148. Um, and Antioch was um, under the control of Eleanor's uncle, Raymond of Poitiers. So they were received there with great um, um, uh, splendour. Um, but that's when 
things really begin to go so wrong what between Eleanor and Louis. We know that there was some kind of real quarrel between them there. Um, about ten years later, John of Salisbury, writing about it, says that Raymond of Poitiers, who was Eleanor's uncle, was very charming, and Eleanor enjoyed talking to him, and Louis became very jealous. And um, John of Salisbury says that Louis loved Eleanor in a very childish way, that he was passionately in love with her, and he became extremely jealous and very, very upset. Um, within 30 years, there were rumours that this had been a sort of huge affair between Eleanor and Raymond, and we simply don't know. Maybe she just enjoyed chatting to him. Um, but also, Louis turned down Raymond's uh, strategic uh, yes. suggestion that they attack in a different way, mm. which was, according to Eleanor, what I've read, uh, better than going for Jerusalem because they were too threadbare in terms of, of weight of arms. Mm. Uh, Louis objected that. He wanted to get out of Antioch, didn't he? So he went to Jerusalem. It was a disaster, and then they had to sail back. Yes, Louis wanted to go to Jerusalem, and uh, Eleanor probably took... Raymond's view that actually they would be much better to fight up in northern Syria. So, so there may well be that, that might have been the quarrel between them. But Abbot Suger writes to, um, to Louis in 1149 saying, may I dare to praise the Queen to you, but please put aside your bitterness towards her until you get back home. But it's at that time, um, Nick and, and Louis Vincent, that, that other things are brewing in the dark legends of Eleanor, that she had an affair with Saladin, that she fought, he, he herself fought at the front in, in the crusade. Is this just the, the way that uh, great people at that time, when rumour took the place of fact? Yes. I mean, this is the um, 14 times of its day. This is nonsense. Um, it, it's projecting onto this woman all sorts of ideas of the evils of womankind and this idea that she fights as an Amazon warrior. Going back to what Lindy was saying just there, I think also there's an awful lot of politics going mm. on here. This mm. isn't just about personalities. Mm. It's Raymond of Antioch had a perfectly legitimate claim to the Duchy of Aquitaine. Uh, he was the, he was the younger brother of Eleanor's father, and th his exclusion from Aquitaine was ex an extraordinary act on behalf of the King of France. So they may well not just have been dallying with one another in an emotional sense. It may well have be involved political negotiations over the future of Aquitaine. The uh, they so this is rumor and fantasy. Yeah. No, no salad in no no fighting like no. Amazon farm. Well, we got that out of the way. Uh, the she had a second daughter though. The Pope uh, tried to keep their marriage together. Yeah. Failed. Mm. It was annulled. Um, on what grounds, Nick, was it annulled? Uh, like all marriages, it was annulled on the grounds of consanguinity. So they were closely related to one another, and. Um, all aristocratic marriages at this time were, in theory, annullable because it was very difficult to find marriage partners who weren't in some way related to one another. And then the sort of the uh, we she's abducted by twice in, for people who want to sort of take her wealth rather than herself. But in the end, married this nineteen-year-old 
young man, not yet king, but about to be king, Henry, uh, and he soon was king, and she went to England as Queen of England. Yeah. yeah. There's again another rumour that she had, with his uncle, or father. Dalliance, with his father, yes. I, was, I, was, I wasn't going to go quite near the bone as that, but your father, thank you, thank you for reminding me. And then she married the son. Yes. So, again, that marriage happens incredibly quickly, and she's really, at this stage, she's a sort of walking title deed. She, she is the, the jackpot that they're all after. They want these rich lands in southern France, and Henry marries her within a matter of weeks of her divorce from Louis. And that comes as a terrible shock to the kings of France, because uh, this is the last thing that the king of France wants, this great rival on the Loire, to scoop all this territory in the south. Yes, and then what happens when they start to have sons, sons, sons and sons and daughters and daughters and daughters makes it even worse. But Julia, Julia Barrow, the, we have what became known as the Black Legend, which Lindy's talked about a little. Can you develop that a bit, the stories that... Uh, what, there are a lot of them. Is it, is it all smoke, no fire? Well, yes, I think most of it is our stories about how somehow she went against nature... So she's rumoured to have slept with her uncle, so then she's rumoured to have slept with the father of her future husband. See, later she, well, is accused of having turned against her husband, which goes against nature because men and women were supposed to be one. So there is that whole thing about her being, yeah, going against the natural order of the world. And so even if you have all those different stories, they actually make sense together, but they are no, there is no reality behind it that we can discern. And a lot of those stories came out late. I mean, all the stories about Geoffrey, so Henry's father, the first time they really are out, as far as we can tell, is the 1180s, so quite a long time afterwards. So there is also the sort of anti-Angevin, anti-Plantagenets. Um, but is the 1180s, I'm not, trying, I'm not being purent here, but is the 1180s such a long time after? We're still in the 12th century. I mean, it, yeah, but it's 30 years later. There's a strong oral history in those days. No? Um, yeah, but I can remember things from 30 years ago. No, but but not, not, not about not remembering, but it, it sort of made sense in a, in, a, in a moment when lots of people in England started uh, criticising the dynasty and trying to show them as, to a certain extent, monstrous. And she was the centrepiece of that new image that was drawn of the family. So the political thing was the English didn't take to her, didn't want her there, and began to use black propaganda. I don't know about the English, but there were certainly um, there were certainly critics, and and going for the woman was also always the easiest way of doing that, especially the powerful woman. Yes, yes, Lindy, Lindy Grant. There, we, we, the idea is Aquitaine, courtly love, uh, Eleanor's involvement in all that, uh, even herself creating it. Now, how, what sort of validity does that have? That's, I think, another legend. Um, Eleanor um, was given, um, sent by Henry to hold court at Poitiers in the late 1160s with her son, Richard, who was made Count of Poitiers. And um, people began, people have thought that uh, she held these extraordinary. Um, courts that were focused on um, poetry, the courtly love poems of the south, of the Occitan, the troubadour poems. The real piece of evidence for this, the, the piece of evidence around which this developed, is again um, 
a piece of writing produced in the 1180s by somebody called Andrew the Chaplin, a book on courtly love, which he wrote probably in Champagne, um, where he, he was at the court of Eleanor's daughter, Marie, Countess of Champagne. And this book features famous women holding court, courts of love, in which they judge various cases like, you know, is it proper for a man to commit adultery? Um, should you commit adultery with this sort of person or that sort of person? And it's supposed to be the famous women, Marie of Champagne, Eleanor, Eleanor's niece, the Countess of Flanders, who sit there and hold these courts and make these judgments. Now, this book is probably a piece of satire, very much based on um, um, Ovid's De Amore, and um, certainly it didn't reflect any sort of reality going on at Poitiers. But it lies at the basis of this idea of, of uh, Eleanor as being the queen of the troubadours. It is persistent, though. And what did she do with all this wealth and influence at these courts? I mean, she, there she is in a position of enormous power. She's incredible wealth. Mm. Uh, she, mm. her, her baggage alone is said to have slowed down the movement of the Second Crusade mm. and be partly responsible for the defeat of, of well, uh, again, this is in the notes. Uh, in feet because it took so much time and space. Anyway, put that to one side. What's she doing with herself? Um, in Poitou, she and Richard are running it fairly effectively for um, Henry. That's later. That's much later on. With, well, with in the eleven sixties, yeah. and yeah. and um, and then until, of course, she um, joins the revolt against Henry yeah. of her sons. Um, what's surprising? then and later is that she doesn't seem to use this wealth to found new monasteries um, in the way that the rest of the family do. Her husband, her sons, um, her husband's um, predecessors and her predecessors as Queens of England. Um, so she doesn't seem to do that. We, it's very unclear what she spends all this wealth on. She gives to Fontifal, but Otherwise, That's her the, patronage, uh, nunnery, great nunnery, yeah. which is on the border of Anjou and Poitou and which has received um, um, gifts both from her family and from Henry's family in the past. Nick, you seem as if you wanted to come in. I think the question there is what real control she had over her own estate. And I suspect she, she was allowed only a very limited control in the alienation of land. She couldn't really give away very much land. She gave away rents. She, she probably did a lot of shopping, Lindy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, I think also that because of this legend, we overlook the fact that this was an extremely pious household. She has an awful yes. lot of chaplains and clerks, probably a very elaborate liturgical life to her own court, mm -hmm. which is obviously in total contradiction to this legend of mm -hmm. all of these courts mm -hmm. of love. Mm -hmm. But maybe a lot of that money went on a very elaborate court mm -hmm. ritual. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, sorry, sorry. Can I, can I move on to something you mentioned, uh, Lindy? Can I move on to that now, in Nick? Why did uh, she back her her uh, her older sons uh, started a rebellion against their father 
1173. Can you describe how that came about, A, and B, why she decided to back them? Okay, a couple of things. Um, we're, we're talking about a, 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 an empire that is monstrous in the idea, in the minds of contemporaries. The empire that Henry II established through all of these scattered estates, through marriage and inheritance that he brings together, is something completely unseen in France since the time of Charlemagne. It's self-consciously projecting itself as something entirely new, and that's one of the reasons the chroniclers are so critical of it. And the big question was whether that would be passed down as a single estate to these sons. Henry II and Eleanor had several sons. So there was always the question of which of those sons would get which bits of the empire. And then throughout her life, Eleanor's problem was the actual day-to-day control that she had over her estate. And I think the manipulation of her sons against her husband was really the only way that she could exercise political authority. Why did he let her get away with it for so long? Um, I don't think that he did, actually. So uh, he he lent her a degree of authority. This is Henry II. He lent her a degree of authority in the 1150s in England, then in Poitou in the 1160s. But it does all go very wrong. It also went wrong at a terrible moment for Henry II. In 1170, Henry II got mixed up in the murder of Thomas Becket. Yes. He either commanded... Well, I'm glad you brought that in. I was wondering when he would make his entrance. Well, he, he certainly plays... You say a mixed up. Part. A lot of people think responsible for is a better I, phrase, no? I'm being very cautious in the language. I mean, people said that he commanded the murder, and certainly I don't think he was terribly upset. He may have been upset by the circumstances, but the disappearance of Becket was a great thing for Henry II. But that, in the eyes of contemporaries, brands him as a son of Satan. He is, he is the devil's spawn. And uh, it makes a rebellion against him that much more easy to comprehend. So, Julie Bowell, can you tell us what form this rebellion took? The, uh, he has five sons, how many of them getting involved? One of them has already been crowned future king, hasn't he? One of the sons. Well, he's, he, he's, he's called the next king or the future king. Or something. The young king. The young yeah, king, that's yeah. it, right. Henry. So he was involved, and, uh, and the uh, three of the others? And so they decided to... They came to France? To uh, well, they were in France, yeah. and um, Henry the young king was in a very... Um, unfortunate position that he had the title officially he was fully king but he had no power no land why did his father do that um to clear things up you mean the coronation yeah it's unclear there was a settlement in 69 when under in an agreement with the french king where what um what henry ii did was to get his sons to do homage to the French king for several parts of the empire, which was a way of not doing it himself. So he probably thought that it was a very clever move. And he gave Henry, was his oldest, the patrimony. So in theory, Anjou and Normandy and England were for Henry. So he gave Henry a theoretical hold of all that, but no practical power. And and that young man, after a few years didn't um, couldn't bear it anymore apparently so what he did was to run to his father-in-law who was the French king and there Louis treated him as the real king and the two younger brothers Richard and Geoffrey followed Um, and from them on mayhem erupted and to cut a very long and complicated story short by the summer of 74 it's obvious that Henry II has won um, but, but there's real fighting, is there? Because there's there is real fighting. Scotland, Scotland, yes, Scotland, course, England, everywhere. I mean, and, so on, yeah. and what is interesting <laughs> that it's not so much a rebellion against the dynasty; it's just people choosing 
between two kings. So there was a legitimate ring to it. And there are examples, there were examples in the past of that sort of thing <coughs> working out. It just didn't. Now, the big question is, uh, Lindy, why did uh, Eleanor take the part of her sons? Yes, it was a terrible mistake. Um, I think that everybody was having to make the decision as to which way, which king would win. And I suppose Henry is looking rather on the back foot at this stage and young Henry looks like the future. And Eleanor was not the only person who made the wrong call. So did a very large number of the aristocracy, both in uh, France, in the French territories and in England. And I think it looked as though the young men young Henry and his younger brothers would win and that that would be the winning side. But in the end, Henry II won and, and that left Eleanor, who had been captured by him, Eleanor a prisoner then for a very long time. I mean, 15 years. 15 years. But mm. hold on. Uh, is, there, is there other real battles and stuff? Does she get caught and, impri and imprisoned before the battle? Can you just give us some idea? Of, so she says she's on their side. Yep. They're in France. She's yep. in, in London? No, she's, in, she's in, on... Yes. Yeah. She's in France too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and, but how does she get caught so easily? Then? She's, she's sort of trapped before the real fighting starts yeah. and she's carried off into captivity. And by? By Henry II. Oh, he gets, he gets her right. And he goes the, straight to the for the juggler. OK, fine, yeah. And think that this is an incredibly complicated, extremely dysfunctional family. Everyone's related to everyone else. That All of these people who get mixed up in it, the kings of Scotland, the counts of Flanders, the kings of France, they're all very closely interrelated. They've all got marital histories mm. going back over 100 years. And um, Eleanor then goes off into captivity in England. Judy? And what is interesting that she's completely left out of the political settlements of the rebellion. Uh, in the autumn of 74, Henry makes peace with his sons and actually makes a compromise with them. And she's not there, and she's not there physically, but she's not there at all. She's not considered as part of the story. She's at that point completely taken out of public view, as if... Um, so she, she's not seen as one of the players, which is quite interesting. Is this relate back to what you were saying earlier in the programme, that she was going against nature by rebelling against her husband and yes. he gave her house arrest uh, yeah. for the next 15 years. Yes, and, and there is a story, and we don't know whether it's true, that when she was captured she was dressed as a man and whether it's true or not doesn't really matter. What matters is what it says again about her going against so social order and the sort of natural order of the world. And she's in an house arrest, strict house arrest for about 10 years, probably quite comfortable, though, because um, she probably spent some of it in Salisbury, where there were recently refurbished royal apartments that she liked very much. And we know from the pipe rolls that she had a very decent income, even if all her lands were confiscated. So we can't, we don't, we don't have to imagine her in a dungeon. But um, but she was out of public life absolutely completely until the mid eighties. And then she reemerged when uh, Henry II died in uh, 1989 and yep. with great force, perhaps her greatest force in the last part of a very long life. She lived into her eighties. Yeah, like like a cork out of a mm. bottle. I mean, this is this is a, 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 an abusive marriage in which. She She's been locked up for 15 years and out she pops and she is determined from that point onwards that she is going to run the show. And she does for a large part of the 1190s. Oh. 
Richard, her son, King of England, went off on crusade and was then captured on his way back to England. Um, Ransom for a huge amount of money. Eleanor essentially ran the show. Even the on, show being the whole of what you called previously the, an empire aiming to match that of Charlemagne. Yeah, and above all, raising the ransom for Richard, making sure that Richard was going to be let out of captivity, dealing with the Pope. She negotiated a series of marriages throughout that decade that really set the family up for the next hundred years. Um, the, 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 whole, the whole of politics after 1189 has Eleanor very, very much stamped <coughs> on it. And she's very active in this, isn't she, Linda? She goes across the Pyrenees to get brides for her sons and, uh, and granddaughters and so on. She builds, she, she actually seeds the Plantagenets wherever she can. I think she's very conscious of the dynasty, even though, in spite of the way her husband has treated her, uh, she's obviously very close to her sons, Richard and John, and to her children. She's based at Fontevraud for a lot of this period. Which is exactly where in France? Well, it's, as I said, just um, on the border of Poitou and uh, Anjou, so just a bit north of Poitiers. But I suppose from there she can get to England fairly easily. Richard asks her to go off, as you say, down to Spain. She has, perhaps, she has connections down there and she negotiates Richard's marriage with Berengaria of Navarre. She brings Berengaria uh, from Navarre and takes her on crusade to uh, meet up with Richard in Cyprus. And then in 1200, uh, King John asks her to go and choose a new bride, a member of the family who that's is going fifth, to be... That's her youngest son, isn't it? That's her youngest son, yeah. who is now King of England, yeah. and he has to... He's in the middle of negotiating a very difficult treaty with the King of France, and uh, the King of France insists that a granddaughter of Eleanor, and um, a daughter of the King of Castile, will be married to the heir to the French throne, and Eleanor is sent all the way to... Castile, where her daughter is queen, to choose this small daughter to go back to become Queen of France. And so, and it's a really important diplomatic um, um, visit, as well as just choosing this child who is going to play this very important role anyway. Lindy's talking about taking over, Nick. What did she do? Richard's away at the Crusades. Does she run everything? Is she now proper regent? People do what she says. She's at last got power. She is the Queen of England. She's certainly got a lot of power. There's an enormous power struggle going on in England. So the justiciars and the people that Richard had left behind, they all go to war with one another. John, Richard's younger brother, gets mixed up in that war. The French stick their oar in. Uh, there's a great degree of complication there, but Eleanor is at the centre of it. Just going back to something Lindy, Lindy said there too, Fontevraud today is a rather remote place. It's in a wood you know, in the middle of nowhere, but it lies pretty much on the Loire. And the Loire is one of those great rivers of France. You go up the Loire, you're in the Atlantic, you can go pretty much wherever you want. So it's really at an axial point. It's at a, a very, very important meeting point in France. How did she raise? How did you? How did she raise the money to get her to get Richard out of Germany? The ransom money, which we were told was colossal. Um, well, there is a the administrative machine of the Angevin monarchy was at that point very strong. So there was all sorts of um, things she could pull out to get money out of the people. Uh, Richard has raised extraordinary amount of money before his crusade, and it sounds as if um, that ransom was actually it was quite a popular 
saying that it, she didn't seem to have had that much trouble getting people because to he pay was for popular. Richard. Because he was popular and because it was, I mean, having one's king in captivity in Germany didn't look very good <laughs> at all. So I think that was not particularly difficult. But what is interesting at that stage is that she doesn't just do that, but she gets mixed up and deeply involved in all sorts of really important and not womanly things, like choosing the next, next Archbishop of Canterbury. And we have letters of people addressing her as the person in charge. So it's, it's not just about dealing with her son. It's not just her as a mother. She clearly at that point, um, as Nick said, seen as in charge, even if she doesn't have any precise title. And she switches immediately to John when Richard dies, doesn't she, Lindy, and shores him up. Yes, she does. Um, she acts very much as Duchess of Aquitaine. She ensures, she goes to do homage for Aquitaine to the French king, and that sort of ensures that Aquitaine will stay in the family. She supports John against another potential heir, who is Arthur of Brittany, the son of an older brother. Um, and I think it's her... and. Her support for John against Arthur, I think, makes a real difference. It really brings the aristocracy of Aquitaine and indeed Anjou in behind John. So it, she plays a very, very important role there. It's a colossal juggling act that she's done. I mean, one doesn't exaggerate. Here's one. I, she's here, there, and everywhere, yep. pulling the whole, holding the whole thing together in a way that possibly nobody else could have done. Yes, Nick. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, and the circumstances of her death, um, we're now sort of heading towards 1204. The circumstances in which she dies, it is probably no coincidence that the whole thing collapses more or less at the time of her death. That somehow or another, she is the survivor who's held this whole thing together. And um, when she dies, it really collapses pretty much immediately. And then we're going to the Hundred Years' War. The fact that so she she's responsible for the Hundred Years' War, really. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I don't think that we, you know, we don't need to blame her for it, <laughs> but certainly if England hadn't had those lands in southern France and that hadn't remained with the English crown thereafter when King John lost the northern bit, England wouldn't have had that toehold in France and there would not have been a Hundred Years' War. And, and so, in, in a sense, yes, she does determine the next 300 years of English history. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yep, I'm absolutely. trying to take that in. Uh, Julie, um, there's been... You, at this time, when she's being very effective with Richard and... Well, effective in certain people's point of view, with Richard and John and so on, has this uh, sniping, stroke mythologising stopped? Um, Mind you, she's, she's quite old, then. she's well, in her 70s and early 80s. You get some chroniclers who are sort of reluctantly admitting that she is a force of nature and the most um, extraordinary text we have is by someone called Richard of Devizes who describes her as that, as a force of nature, as a formidable woman. So you can feel that by that stage, partly because, probably because she's an elderly woman, she's there as a queen mother. So all the sort of stories about her sexual life about it, it are not relevant anymore. Um, at that stage you feel that people at while she's doing it, have to recognise that she's extraordinary. But as soon as she's dead, all the mythologizing carries on and, and returns. So there is a brief window when you feel that suddenly she's looked at as she is, and then it, it just vanishes. So it's a brief moment. 
Lindy, can I ask you about her connection with uh, Fontero? And she gave a lot of money to that. So we haven't stressed enough, although she didn't give money to build um, uh, great objects or cathedrals. Or she did. She was very pious, uh, it seems, uh, and this mattered a great deal to her. Can you tell us a bit about that place and her place in that place? Yes, Fontevraud, as we say, have said, it, it was a great nunnery. It was seen as a reformed order of the 12th century. And it's, it's in this very specific place. It's in the county of Anjou, but the Diocese of Poitiers. So it was absolutely um, on the uh, borders of the two. And so Eleanor's family had given to it, and so had Henry's family. And in fact, Henry and Richard were great... Um, supporters of Fontevraud. Both of them had uh, were real architectural patrons of the Abbey as well. Eleanor retired there. Uh, she built a wall around it, whereas Richard builds a, a, a posh cloister. She just builds a protective wall. But she did, she did give it a very grand processional cross and she gave it some wonderful silken cloths and things like that. Um, and the other thing is that I suppose she turns it into the sort of dynastic mausoleum. Henry died at Chinon, fairly close to Fontevraud, and so his body was brought to Fontevraud for burial. After all, he had given so much to it. Yes. Richard died a long way away from Fontevraud, but I think it's Eleanor who insists on bringing his body there to be buried alongside his father. And then Eleanor, I think commissions the tombs for the two kings. Can there. you summarise very briefly, Nick, I'm sorry, but uh, her influence on other queens at the time and in her dynasty? Because she bred queens as well as everything else. Yeah, she did. I think that thereafter, the kings of England did not want another one like that. And uh, there is a, a, a clear difference between the sort of power that she exercised. She's the most powerful woman in medieval Europe, probably. She's certainly probably the richest. She, she has this sort of imperial style to her. And that thereafter, there is no real queen that matches her in terms of political influence. She travels um, on all these journeys in great state, I presume. Uh, she, one, as, one assumes so. Lindy's looking sceptical there because there are queens of France and there are others who, who sort of try to step into the shoes. Your scepticism has a severe yeah. time limit, Lindy, but away right. you go. I, I would just say that the one um, queen who really does um, rival her influence and power is the granddaughter that she bought from Castile who becomes Blanche of Castile, Queen of France, mother of St. Louis, and actually has a political career that probably rivals Eleanor's. Yeah. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, indeed, Lindy Grant, Julie Barrault, and Nicholas Vincent. Next week, we'll be talking about chromatography. And uh, thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What did I miss out? <laughs> um... Eleanor has a younger sister when she comes to be Queen of France and the younger sister comes too. One of Louis VII's cousins, the Count of Vermandois, elopes with the younger sister who's called Petronilla and this turns into war and between Louis and the Count of Champagne and it's a dreadful war because during it um, Louis besieges the town of Vitry in Champagne and the townspeople of Vitry 
take refuge in the church and Louis fires the church and these people are all burnt. Mm. And he, it's seen that he's launched this vicious and terrible war almost because of Eleanor's younger sister. That, that whole story is very much behind Louis mm. going on crusade. Mm. Mm. And I think that that's an important point. There are lots of members of this family. There are all sorts of cousins mm. and so on of Eleanor mm. who play a big part in all of this, mm. and they are generally written out of the story. Mm. We, we, you know, no one has properly mm. traced all of that mm. um, Eleanor's side of the family. Mm. What, happened to the, what happened to the two daughters of Louis? Um, the first two daughters. The first two daughters. They both yeah. married brothers, uh, the Count of Blois and the Count of Champagne. Mm. And the one who married the Count of Champagne had an extraordinary career. She was regent mm. of the county when her twice, and then she went off to uh, the Holy Land to die. So she she's a woman who had a, an mm. interesting an interesting yes. life. Did they keep, did, mm. Ella, did Ella keep in touch with them? Well, I'd, mm. this is this this is this whole issue of the. Um, um, courts of Love, yeah. uh, Marie of Champagne is a great patron of romantic literature, would one call it that, of Chrétienne de Troyes, and she is the person who features very largely in the book on courtly love by Andrew the Chaplin. But exactly how much Eleanor and Marie are in touch is very unclear, and certainly I don't think that you can say that, that Marie went to the court at Poitiers, as, as people tried to argue earlier. You get a whole series of modern historians mm. trying to work out the psychology. Mm. Was she a good mother? Wasn't <laughs> she a good mother? And we really don't know. But we can say that she's rather like Queen Victoria. She's related to or every dynasty mm. in Europe, mm. somehow or another, is related to Eleanor. There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.